Let's go ahead and get to chapter one. just want to reiterate one thing that I said. We had a few people come in afterwards. Uh, we started last night. Uh, Garrett brought us um, a sermon, and he mentioned that we would be looking at the pillars of the gospel over this weekend. And um, the one thing I just wanted to, to, to remind us of is the, the, t- the total beauty of the gospel in its fullness, right? But each each thing that contributes to that fullness in itself is beautiful and glorious and in itself points to truth of God and man, right? And so um, it is important to break it down and to look in depth at at these things. Um, So last night I read from 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, that's if someone was to say, go find a definition of the gospel in Scripture, that would be a great place to go. Like, it's written in like three verses. Christ died for our sins and according with the Scriptures. He rose from the dead and according to the Scriptures. Or was buried and rose from the dead and then presented himself alive to the believers, to the people. Three verses, the gospel nailed, right? But one thing that Paul also writes is Romans, which is considered chapters 1 through 11, the greatest description or instruction of what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, three verses. Romans, 11 chapters. You've got a simple form and you've got a complex, or we could even say complicated uh, form. Uh, We have tendencies as human people, as believers, to drift to one or the other and to, and to camp out in the simple or to camp out in the complex. And a lot of times that's driven by who we are as a person. Are we more uh, keen to academic knowledge and instruction or are we pulled more towards um, driven to accomplish through the simple and so most people are driven in one direction or the other um, but to live in one or the other could be dangerous to live in a gospel that is just a simple one sentence slogan and to base your life or your church off of that could be very dangerous because a simple 
just a living in the simple could make the gospel so easy that it actually creates misunderstanding. Right? It could create a misunderstanding. It could come from, you want to go to heaven, follow Jesus. Or if you want to be a Christian, just do as Jesus said, or love like Jesus has loved. Or just pray this prayer or do this or do that. And the, and the gospel is just made easy, right? Not that that's not true, because Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is simple, that you can say it in a few verses, right? But then what's the danger of living in the complex, of making the gospel so complicated? Again, it would be misunderstood, it couldn't be understood. And the problem with that is it removes faith from the picture. So making it easy removes knowledge from the picture, which Paul is definitely against. To make it so, so complicated removes faith from the picture, which Paul is, again, definitely against. And if you live in the complicated, if you make the gospel more about knowledge than what it is, you create arrogance, upturned noses, and ultimately Pharisees, right? So you got the, the simple camp and you got the complicated camp. So where should we be? What camp should we live in? Well, I mean, it's obvious. You should be dual citizens of both camps. You know, put a, put a, a sleeping bag in one and a sleeping bag in the other. You shouldn't just pick and say, this is where it is, and so I'm going. And so, but how do we know? How do we know if we should be in the simple at this time, or we should look at the depths of it on this time, or how should we present it? Should it be presented this way or that way? How is it going to make me live? Uh, the only way to know, the only way to know that why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 and his example of the gospel in three verses, and why he decided to write Romans 1 through 11. For, as an explanation for the gospel to the Romans, how would we know why and where, when and how? We have to be a student of the word. You have to open it and you have to read it. You have to think about it. You have to consider it, right? Because the more you're in the word of God, the more you will understand the truth of God in circumstances, in situations, in this part of life and that part of life. And sometimes you simply need to know 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. That's it. That's what you need today. And there are some points in your life where you need to open up, get out a pen and paper, and you need to read through Romans 11, and you need to know about all of the details that go, that make up 1 Corinthians 15. And see, that's the reality. They're the same gospel, just from different perspectives. And so this is more of a what are we doing here than the righteous life of Christ. But this leads to what we're doing today. We are looking at something that's not listed in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. But it's implied. If you're a student of the scripture and you know 
where Paul has been, where God, where God has come from, where it has led up to this point. So the topic that we are in right now is righteousness or the life or righteousness found in the life of Christ. Um, and when we simplify the gospel, this is one of the things we tend to miss. The necessity of the righteous life of Christ. So when we miss when we miss this truth of the righteous life of Christ and we live in the camp of simplicity and our we hang the banner of 1 Corinthians 15, which don't get me wrong, that's not a bad banner. And our slogan is Christ died for your sins. Christ died for your sins. Christ and that's all we say, that's all we know, that's all we proclaim. That's not wrong. But we're missing seeing the individual trees in the forest, the beauty of each tree that makes up the complexity, the wholeness of the gospel. We could miss a couple things. We could miss a couple important truths. And the two that came to my mind, and I think the two that are probably in your mind when it comes to the righteous life of Christ is number one, God's requirement of righteousness. All right, we talked about that last night. Garrett showed us the truth of all of our position in Christ. We are all the same distance from God, as he said, unrighteous. See, heaven isn't filled with forgiven sinners. Heaven isn't filled with forgiven sinners, but heaven is, forgi- is filled with forgiven sinners who are counted as righteous. So that's two different things. Forgiveness and righteousness are two different things. Um, None is righteous, no, not one. Yet to be with God for eternity, righteousness is required. Righteousness is required. Where does it come from? Those sinners that are in heaven, those forgiven sinners who are counted as righteous... Why are they counted as righteous? That's the first thing we see or we could miss if we do not dwell on the righteous life of Christ. The second thing is, and we know, we know it, is the necessity for a perfect sacrifice. Right? The idea that we get out of Exodus, out of um, the Passover, the spotless lamb, right? Is it... God wasn't just like, oh, we need the best lamb, you know, the ones that look pretty. We don't want to we don't want to slaughter any ugly lambs that's got spots. But no, that was a remember we've talked about a shadow. It's something that had a form, but we couldn't see the full detail of it. The spotless lamb, it had form. Like we knew there was something there, but we couldn't see the detail of what God was trying to say to us. Well, we see the detail of the spotless lamb in a righteous, perfect Christ. The necessity of a perfect life for a perfect sacrifice. See, that Friday on Calvary, there were three crosses. Without the righteous life of Christ, on Friday on Calvary, there would be three crosses, three men, and three sinners who died. Apart from the righteous life of Christ, 
Jesus would have died a guilty sinner along with the other two on Calvary. Instead of Christ dying for our sins and raising from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth, a good teacher, right, would have been martyred by the Romans and you could have visited his grave in your sin. So, acknowledging, accepting, and believing what we looked at last night, that we all are unrighteous and in grave danger of the wrath of God, we turn our attention to the righteous life of Christ. We're looking at the depths of God, His demand of righteousness, His faithfulness, His faithfulness to who He is, holy and just, but also His love and mercy. And so we unfold the beauty of the gospel here by, as we look at the righteous life of Christ. So quickly, let's, let's, let's just read a few verses that remind us of where we were last night. I'm not going to expound on them, I promise. I'm just going to read them. And then we will we'll approach our passage in Romans 3 where we'll pick up where Garrett left off last night. So just to remind us of what we looked at last night, look at Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and un righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So instead of expounding it to you, I'm just going to enunciate the words I really want you to catch on to, okay? Uh, Okay, now look down at 28. And since then, they they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they he, uh, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Jump down to 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, we heard that last night, that those who practice such things deserve to die They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now turn the page or look at the next chapter. Chapter 2, verse 5. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now let me just say this. I will say this, justify, just put in, stand before God as righteous, right? No human being will stand before God as righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So that's where 
where we got last night. So we're at a dilemma here. We've got a dilemma because we know, I've already spoken about it, that God wants to make unrighteous people righteous. That's the dilemma that we're at. None are righteous. No, not one. And it, it, it feels, as we've read this, and it was spoken of a bit last night, that the old plan, or the old covenant, or the Old Testament, doesn't seem to be working. Right? Because it's been given, it's, the instructions have been presented, and yet Paul is writing, quoting the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. Something's gone wrong with the old plan. Because if you notice in verse 21, where we're picking up in chapter 3, but now the righteousness of law has been manifested or revealed or made known apart from the law. That old plan. It's now this righteousness that's needed is, is coming about apart from the law. So what, what's going on? And, and we'll, we're going to use this word because it's going to be in a verse that we're going to look at. In chapter 8, we won't, you know what, let's go ahead and let's read Romans 8, a few verses out of that, just to kind of help us think through together in unison as we work through this. 8, let's start in, in verse 1. We're going to read through this just so it's in our minds, and we'll come back to it and kind of break it apart as we finish here. So keeping in your mind, the righteousness of God has, has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. Chapter 8. Now, or there is therefore, in verse 1, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So go back up to three. And the one thing I want you to hang on to is the beginning of three. For God has done with the law, comma, this is it, weakened by the flesh. I want, I want you to hang on to that and bring that back to Romans 3, okay? What God has forgot, God has done something that the law could not do, weakened by the flesh. The old plan wasn't working, but it wasn't because the law wasn't working. But it was because the people that the law was given to, they weren't working. They were broke. And Paul says they were weak. It was their weakness. Right? Even the ones that God had appointed to stand between God and the people the high priest, they, had, they too had this weakness. Um, put your ribbon in, in here and look at Exodus 32. So instead of me trying to tell the whole story, we'll just read a little bit of 32. 
So we we can consider we can consider a story out of the Old Testament here to help us with this. We can consider Moses on Mount Sinai. And what's he been given? He's been given the law from the mouth of God, written on on tablets of stone. Um, and Israel is down at the foot of the mountain, and God has told them, and we've talked about this in Sunday school the last few weeks, do not touch this mountain lest you die. This is, do not touch this mountain, for it is holy ground, for the presence of God is upon it. So Moses receives the law. God knows what's going on downstairs and says, you better go back. So Moses, after being up there, Carrying these tablets down, look at verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back, they were written. The tablets, look at this, the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God. Engraved on the tablets. 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Y'all remember what the Israelites were doing? What they had created with their own hands? You remember remember the, the passage that Garrett gave us last night about they had... Um, They were, they were worshiping the, the creature rather than the creator. They weren't just worship, worshiping a creature. They had made themselves creator and was worshiping their creature, right? They had made their own creature and had called it God. Verse 18, but he said, is it not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat? but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, that which they had, they had created, the idol they had created, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. I think something, I, this seems pretty symbolic for me. I don't want to over I don't want to overthink this. But as Moses comes down with the 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 law of God written on tablets of stone, he's coming to bring it for his people. He's bringing down to them a way to righteousness. Right? He wants them to be his treasured possession. And the only way for that to happen is for them to be righteous. And he gives them his law and says, do this. This is the path of righteousness. But yet he gets down there, Moses gets down there carrying the law of God, written by him, God, and he sees what? He sees their unrighteousness unfolding right before his eyes as he holds their path to righteousness in his hands. 
obey and you can make it up the mountain to the presence of God. So he breaks them. He throws them onto the ground. The law was capable of leading them to this symbolic mountain, right? To this symbolic mountain, to the presence of God. But their weakness shattered their opportunity. Their own weakness shattered their opportunity. If, if you're like my wife, who's very empathetic, you might be in the position where you're thinking, okay, but this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem like Israel got a fair shake, right? If God knew their weakness, why would he give them something that they could not do? I've thought that. Have y'all thought that? Like, why, why would he do that? If he knew God, their creator, their redeemer, he knew their capabilities, couldn't he have not made it a little bit easier for them? If God would have made the path to righteousness easy, it would not have been a path to God, right? If he would have made it to where they could just, he knew their weakness, so if I could just make something to, to like balance that out so they can do it good enough, if that was coming from the God we know in the scripture, that would lead them directly to hell. He could not give them anything short of who he was. Perfect. You got to keep this perfectly to have perfect relationship with a perfect God. So to give them any shortcuts would be damning for them. The problem wasn't in the path. It was in the person, which we discussed last night. And so I was thinking about this and Forgive me for this horrible illustration, but it helped me, so I hope it helps you. Imagine you've got to do a race up a mountain, right? Don't try to connect all the dots spiritually because it doesn't work, I promise. <laughs> imagine you've got, to, imagine you've got to, to go up, do this race on a mountain, and they carved out a path for you, right? And, and you're ready, you start the race, you go and you're running and you get halfway up there and you just cannot make it anymore. You're done. It, you're taught, your legs are done. You might have had to, you know, you couldn't, you, you just could not make it up this path up to the top of this mountain. But then you're sitting there and then there goes, there goes somebody else. They just went. They just passed you and they just went up the mountain Right, and so our, our flesh tends to simply say, if we can't do it, it's not us that's the problem. It's whoever created the path. Right, it's not, the path wasn't 
easy enough or it wasn't straight enough. It wasn't right enough. No, you were out of shape. You couldn't do it. There's somebody else that just went past you and they made it right to the top. Like I said, don't take that illustration all the way. But the idea is that we cannot blame the person who created the path. We have to look inward to ourselves and say, I ain't got what it takes. So we'll hang on to that subpar illustration. We'll come back to it. Uh, The path was right. Understand that the law given from God to Israel was right. It was righteous. It was perfect. It was pure. It was not weak. So what did, what did God have to do to over, overcome the weakness of whom he gave the path to, the law to? Well, look at Romans, back in Romans 3. And so we're going to touch, just touch on this real quick and then jump to Romans 8. I mean, I promise you, there, there's so much in Romans. We couldn't, we couldn't even be- begin to go through every point of this, especially chapter 3 here in this section. But I just want you to see how he unfolds verse 21 and 22. But now, I, I still hear some pages flipping. I'll give you a second. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here's, now, so that, that, that thought kind of breaks up the sentence. So let's read it without the although, because that, that, that's a great truth, but it breaks up the sentence. It's hard for us to read it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Jump down to 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So now the righteousness, coming out of the passage, now the righteousness of God, that which he needs in order to make right his people, his treasured possession, it's no longer coming through this first path but he's presented something else, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the through faith part we'll we'll consider tonight. But in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. So what did he do? Romans 8. Let's look at it. Let's start back at at verse 1. A little bit here that doesn't go directly to to answer our question, but will help us see the outcome as well. So verse 1 in chapter 8 really starts with the outcome of what God did. So there was the law, the path to righteousness... It wasn't working because of the weakness of whom the, because of whom the law was given to. But for some reason, 
Whatever God did, there is therefore now no condemnation. Well, those who were under the law, they were condemned. But whatever God has done through Christ, now there's no condemnation. Are the people doing better? Have they figured it out? God has accomplished a place or a state or a status where unrighteous sinners can now stand before God who has not erased his law or said, this isn't an issue anymore and put it in his back pocket. But he's figured something out, not, and not in, the, no, hear me, not in the sense of he had to scramble for another plan, but in human terms, he's figured something out to accomplish the reality that an unrighteous sinner who cannot keep the law the way it, it needed to be can stand before God uncondemned. And what do I mean when I say uncondemned? It means that they can't step foot on that mountain. Right? They broke the law. It shattered. And for them to touch that mountain, they shall die and perish. That is the condemnation that we speak of. But now, no more. And it was done. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God Through faith in Christ Jesus, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're going to skip verse 2 for the sake of time. And verse 3 is going to tell us how it was done. Now look at verse 3. These first four words of verse 3, just soak it in. For God has done. For God has done. These four words reflect the invaluable beauty of God. For God has done. These four words set apart Christianity from all other false religions. These four words separate the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three in one, from all other false gods. They and their false religions set up a a task, a challenge, a direction, a checklist to be done by you for the sake of eternal life. But verse 3 in Romans and all throughout Scripture sets apart God, Yahweh, from all of them because He has done. He has participated. He has accomplished. He did. What did He do? He did what we could not do. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? He sent by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, why is 
those two words significant, sinful flesh. So go back to go back to Mount Sinai and you're standing in the crowd around the golden calf. Moses is standing on the foot of the mountain. He's just broken the law of God that was written by God, thrown it to the ground. The crowd is quiet. And out of the midst of the crowd, a man steps forward. From inside of the, the, the crowd of Israel, a man steps forward, walks up to Moses. He picks up the shattered pieces, and as he picks them up, they form back together in his hands. I will keep these. I will do these. I will accomplish this. And he takes the tablets and he steps on the mountain and he ascends to the top, to the presence of God. One from their midst. One in their likeness. One who could do what they could never do. Their brother. This is the incarnate God. This is the man born of a virgin. But yet from the seed of Israel. He did what they could not do. And he walked upon the mountain with the, with the law and the tablets and he ascended to the peak of a place that they dare not touch. This is the picture of the Son of God born in the flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh. God Himself saying, I will do this for you. If you look at 8, back at 8, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why couldn't have God just taken care of it from heaven? Why couldn't he just said sin go away? Because he did not would he would not be then faithful to himself. If he just said sin go away, he would not be just. He would be a wicked judge. He would not be righteous because he would just say, you could just come in. We don't have to worry about it. But he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. What did it accomplish? Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So I've told you before, you go to the, the fair, you got to be this tall to ride this ride, right? If you're not this tall, you can't get on the ride. Well, in heaven, 
if you're not completely righteous, you can't get on this ride. Jesus fulfilled all requirements of the law. But but who gains? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See the pattern here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets are bearer. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Therefore, there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we later find out in this chapter that this same spirit is the spirit of Christ who dwells in all who believe. So what's, what's the significance of this? I think one verse outside of Romans captures all of this. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this for just a second and then we'll quit. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I'm going to change the pronouns to proper nouns for us. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Let me say it again. For God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin. He knew no sin. None. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh and knew no sin. In order that you might become the righteousness of God. We call it the great exchange. Your filth and unrighteousness. That you worked real hard for. For the gift of the righteousness of God that was earned every second of Jesus' life. Every second of Jesus' life. His actions, his words, his thoughts. He earned the righteousness of God. For God has done, what has he done? He's given it to us. He has gifted it to us so that we could ascend to the mountain into the presence of God. We can follow the footsteps of the one who picked up the pieces of the tablets and accomplished what we were supposed to 
and follow his trail up to the mountain. Without this, there's no access to God. And there is no forgiveness of sin. It is one of the beautiful trees that are in the forest of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And so when we think about the gospel and the work of Christ, we start at the cross and we can work our way back to the life of Christ and see what he did his whole life for you and me. Let's pray. Father, you are an artist who paints a masterpiece. And you have painted us into the picture of eternity. God, by the blood of your Son, and it has upheld upon the easel of his life, of his work. And may we not forget not just the death, but we remember the life of Christ. God, bring that to our mind as we fall to temptation today or tomorrow or the next day as we grapple with the sin within our heart, bring to mind the work of your Son in all righteousness. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.